Paul the Apostle writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Now, this is Paul writing this, the great man of God. Listen to what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. How many of you are familiar with those words? Just curious. Would you raise your hand if you're familiar somewhat with those words? Half the room then is hearing these words um, for the first time. And that encourages me because I get a chance, an opportunity to maybe slip one brick into the foundation of your thinking about how you're going to view trouble, affliction, suffering as a Christian for the rest of your days. You and I have to understand some things so that when these things come against us, it's just a part of being alive on planet Earth. I made it very clear last week, none of us are entitled to full permanent immunity from trouble and hardship on planet Earth. Nobody gets a free pass. We share that. Doesn't matter if we're black or white or Asian or Hispanic. Doesn't matter if we're American or from some other part of the world. It doesn't matter if we're living in 21st century where we currently are or if we were living in the first century. The one thing that all human beings share is this issue of struggle all the way along the spectrum, even under suffering. We're all going to experience some level. And the question is that we've got to answer philosophically and theologically is, is God still good in the midst of all of that? Now, our instinct is to say, yes, of course he is, because we know theologically that he is. But listen, this is, this is where our minds, our heart, our spirit, all of the um, synchronicity of who we are, we have to come to not only a doctrinal declaration of yes, he's good, we have to come to a deep, heartfelt, solid conviction that he's good. We don't need to just know it, we need to so know it that it governs us, governs what we say, governs how we respond, governs our outlook, governs our, our, our interactions, and here's the beauty of it. When something is happening to us as believers, something undesirable, the scriptures are pretty clear that because of the one who lives inside of us, whatever's coming against us from the outside, there is a moment where we can capture that thing and we can take it and we can turn it inside out. 
and what was meant for evil or meant for harm, we can actually take ownership of that thing, turn it inside out, and bring God glory through it and actually use it for something good. Joseph, Old Testament Joseph, said it best when he said, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good. And so when the quote-unquote evil hits you, when the bad hits you, when the hard hits you, when the trial, the trouble, the loss, the pain, the suffering, when it hits you, and sometimes it hits you hard, and the enemy always designs it for evil, but there are embedded in Christian truth the realities that we can take what was meant for evil and flip it. And what was meant for evil can actually bring about so much good. This may be part of what James had in mind when he says, if you'll resist the devil, he will run from you. Why? Because when the devil brings hardship and hardship and hardship and trouble and trouble and trouble, and you keep turning that trouble that he's bringing to you, and you keep using it for the glory of God and for the good of others, he's finally going to say, don't mess with that lady anymore. Every time we design to destroy her, she puts a hurting on our agenda because she flips it for good. So let's get into 2 Corinthians and think with me this morning. I want you to think with me this morning. You may be challenged theologically this morning, but I hope you are, and I hope you can continue to think through it. Let me give you some essentials for seasons of suffering. There are some essentials. This is across the board, true for all of us. And here's the first one. Paul had a conviction in his own suffering that he addresses, and we find it at the beginning of verse number three. Here it is. Here's his conviction. This must be your conviction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any one of us can say that on the mountain. Any one of us can sing it when the bank account is full, the body is healthy, the marriage is great, the kids are beautiful, things are going our way. Anybody, it's so easy to sing it, say it, preach it, teach it, parse it out in the Greek and, 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 and proclaim it in any language. Oh, God is good. But Paul is writing this while he is in an intense season of suffering. And as he opens up by, after welcoming them in verses one and two, he opens up and he says, I want to tell you how good God is. I want to bless his holy name. Paul says this, my conviction is no matter what, God is good, period. We say it in our day, when I say God is good, what do y'all say back? I say God is good, and you say all the time. And, and, and it's true, it's not just some church cliche, but there are seasons where it is not as heartfelt when it comes out of our mouth. It, is, it costs you something to praise him in the furnace. It costs you something to say those words with full conviction when nothing makes sense. And Paul is about to reveal that in this passage of Scripture, he was going through the worst of the worst, but I love how he opens up. He opens up with his conviction that can't be moved. He's saying God is good, and in essence, if I can unpack it, God was good before I ever was, before I was ever on earth. God was good. God was good when I was bad. God was good when he took the bad me and saved me and justified me and freed me through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. God was good. God was good when he was blessing me. God was good when he was disciplining me. God was good when I had full protection and nothing could touch me. And God was good when he took back some of that protection to even allow trial and trouble to hit my life. God is good when he entrusts me with difficulty. That's the testimony of every Christian. And that's our conviction. You see... We never 
judge God based on what's happening in our life. There's one thing that none of us are qualified for, and that is to judge the character of God. He has judged his own character, and he has proclaimed it. He doesn't even defend it because there's no accusation that could come against him that is remotely close to being just. He's just a very, very immeasurably good God. So Paul goes on. He goes on in verses 3 and 4, and he wants to say something about his companion during his suffering, and we'll find out in a moment that he's suffering. Just take it for granted right now. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he calls him this, the Father of mercies, plural, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. This is beautiful, because this good glorious, immeasurable, sovereign, eternal, um, uncontainable God who sits atop all of creation, who governs the cosmos, who is impossible in our own power for us to reach him. He is so immeasurably good and vast that we could almost give in to the temptation to think that he's just out there somewhere being good. He's just out there somewhere. This great God is out there somewhere. But look at what Paul says. Paul says, no, he's the father of mercies. When mercy is shown, it's up close and personal. And so what Paul does in between the beginning of verse 3 and the middle of verse 3, he bridges this great distance between this awesome, unfathomable, sovereign God. He makes that gloriously good God and brings him down to a biblically justified level of a father that's so close, if you can picture it this way, he has the tenderness that sometimes a mom might show when she kisses her baby's boo-boo. That's the picture he's painting of God. He's glorious, he's immense, he's unfathomable, unfathomable, immeasurable, but he's the father of mercies. He stoops in grace. He comes to you where you are. Why? So he can comfort you. This God is a God of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction. You say, well, Jeff, that's great. Well, it's not great to you yet, and let me tell you why. Because if you don't internalize that and don't let it be a theological statement hanging in the air about God, let it be a truth that you reach out and grasp by faith and you get it in your head and you squeeze it hard enough until the juice runs down into your heart. That you, you think it and you know it and then you expect it to be real in your life. That this great God stoops in grace, comes to you in your trouble, meets you in your your hour of need for mercy, and he comforts you in any and all affliction. Listen to me. You're not invisible. You're not forgotten. You're not on your own. You're not ignored. He is in the midst of the good days, and he is in the midst of the terrible days. To the extent that he is saying by his presence and his activity, I don't want you to merely know that I am the great I am. I want you to know that I am the great I am who is there with you. I am with you. And Paul could feel that, and he could know it. God was his very present help in a time of immense trouble. And so... Paul's going to tell us a little bit of the why. This is what's so important, I think, for us as we're growing in faith. There's actually, there's actually 
assignments that are connected to our trouble, our trial, and our pain. Look in verse 4. It'll be up on the screen. Paul says he, he comforts us in all our afflictions so that, that means here's the reason, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, it's a little tangled in any language, Greek, English, it doesn't matter. It's a little tangled. I'm going to untangle it, make it very plain. Paul is saying this, when we are struggling and we are troubled, and this great God, the God of all glory, stoops to us in grace, ministers mercies, plural to us, as we need them, when he entrusts us with trial, entrusts us with trouble, he already has prepared the mercies we're going to need because he wants us to experience him as the comforter, and he can't be the comforter unless there is a reason that we need to be comforted. And so the trouble opens the door, the gateway, for us to know God in a, in a way that God wishes to be known. Now, careful here. There is some, there's some little trigger mechanism in our human heart that says, hey, how about I don't need to know you as comforter and therefore I, I don't have to experience any pain? How about we just bypass that comfort thing? We, I just believe it. I don't, I don't really feel like I want to experience it because I know to experience it, I'm going to have to experience some trouble. So how about I take you at your word that you're the God of all comfort and you don't have to teach me that in a practical actuality. And, and that's the way the little, little mechanism in our heart works. But we've got to remember it's important to God that we know God as comforter because it's a beautiful part of who he is that he wants to share with us. He wants us to know him as comforter. And so when we experience that, he says, now turn it inside out. Take what you're experiencing from me or have experienced from me as comforter, and I want you to take all of that and I want you to comfort each other. I want you to show my comfort one to another. So one of the ways that God comes as comforter is that he comforts us through each other. Listen, I live up in Houston, Georgia on, on, on a street called Peacock Lane. And, and Jesus did not ring my doorbell, physically walk into my house, sit down in my den with me and comfort me. But do you know what he did? He sent some of you. Some of you sent emails, some of you sent cards, some of you sent texts, some of you have come alongside of Amy, some of you have taken my kids out to eat, some of you have shown compassion and comfort, and I have received it not only as the beloved of the Lord and the body of Christ, but I have seen it as coming, I've received it as coming from God himself. He has comforted me because you have known his comfort, and you have taken the comfort that you've experienced from him, and you've poured it out on me, and you've poured it out on others. And that's part of why he allows us to go through some of the things that we go through. It's this us, we. Paul says this, we have experienced, he's poured out his comfort on us so that we might pour it out on you. And by the way, this is not just unique for Paul and the apostles. It's for all believers. So before moving on to verses five through seven, let me ask you a really tough question. And... Um, just be wise and, and, and take your time in answering it because it's an important question. So here's the question. Are you and I as followers of Jesus willing to accept trouble, suffering as the means whereby we get to know God more intimately as comforter? Are we willing to know him as comforter by experiencing the affliction? If it's important to God, that we know him as he is, and part of who he is 
is this comforting father of mercies. But the only way, the only way we can experience that is if we enter into a season or a temporary state of pity, pitifulness. We can't know his mercies unless we enter into at least a moment of wretchedness. And so the question is, are we willing? Are we willing to experience that component of who he is? And if we say yes, then can we, when trouble hits, can we say it's time to know him in his mercies and comfort? And by faith, Lord, in my spirit, I say I expect your mercies, I expect your comfort, and I embrace what you have allowed to find me. Can we do that? Those are big boy, big girl, philosophical, theological issues. And our knee-jerk, unexamined response to trouble is often just to blame the devil, rebuke him, and cast him out. And listen, I've done plenty of that. I'm not against that. But what I'm saying is we'll learn next service is Paul got into a place where he had this thing called a thorn in the flesh. And he rebuked it. And then he prayed. And he knew it was a messenger of Satan. He knew it. His theology was not in question. He knew the devil sent it. He knew it was bad. And he said, Lord, let's get this thing out of my life. And the Lord did not take it out of his life. And so Paul ultimately had to come to the place, not as a man who lacked faith, not as a man who doubted God, but as a man who heard expressly from Jesus, Paul, I'm leaving this weakness in your life because through the doorway of this weakness that I'm leaving with you is going to come massive strength from me that you need. And so we have to say, was that just a one-time unique experience for Paul? History play, uh, clarifies that for us that, no, pretty much anybody you have ever admired in the Christian journey, any hero of the faith that you have, trust me, anybody that is walking at a high level of consecration, power, and glory for Jesus, they have a chapter or two or 10 of deep pain in their lives. And so we have to answer the question, are we willing to accept that chapter in our own lives so that we also may have that chapter of, oh, let me tell you about his mercy. Let me tell you about his faithfulness. Let me tell you about his comfort. Let me tell you about the glory that I experienced in the valley that he allowed. Paul is saying we have to receive it and pour it out on others. So let's go through verses five through seven. Again, I'm teaching this morning less than preaching, but um, let's look at what I call embracing the benefits from suffering. Um, can I be real clear here? Art, Art Gaynor and I were talking about this yesterday or the day before. I don't chase suffering. <laughs> I don't, I'm not like waiting in line to sign up. Lord, I'd like a little more. I'd like, can, can I get a little more, a little heavier dose next time? I'm not that guy. I'm not one of those weirdo Christians that just, you know, is just longing for trouble. Uh, Jesus said, sufficient is the trouble for the day thereof. Meaning, wake up tomorrow. If, if trouble is required in order for you to be developed into who you're going to be developed in by God, it'll be there. You don't have to go begging for it. But if it's going to happen, and it's going to happen, what are the benefits from it? Could, could we actually slow down enough and say, what is the good that God intends, even through the evil that the enemy or the flesh or the world brings against me? Well, Paul's going to help us with that too. Verse number five, to me, is the most important benefit from any kind of struggle, trial, trouble, or suffering, and it is deeper fellowship with Jesus himself. 
Deeper intimacy, deeper fellowship. Verse five, as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ, we share abundantly in comfort too. Paul was talking about a very unique type of suffering he was going through. Paul didn't have a bad day at work. Paul didn't have an irritating person in his life. It wasn't that. Paul is suffering for the gospel. He's losing his freedom. His life would eventually be taken from him. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. He, He lists out all the things that he suffered. And by the way, he said, and I count them as rubbish. I count them as manure. I count them as nothing because what I have gained through all of my losses is so superior to anything that I actually lost. I count those losses as nothing. But here's the thing that Paul and really scripture itself reveals. The the discovery of the treasure in our trials is that we get to know him better right here, right now. And I know we should not take this for granted, but I'm going to go ahead and say this just to remind us all. I I remind you and I remind me. The greatest gift that a human being can experience is to know God, to know him, not just about him through the word, and I love the word, you know, I'm a Bible guy, but to know him experientially, to know him according to the word, but not only in the word, to know him theologically and truthfully, but to know him personally and experientially. And I want to tell you, I believe theologically way more than I have experienced personally. In other words, I have way more understanding here about God than I do interactively here with God. And the the times where I meet him most intimately and you meet him most intimately and Paul meets him most intimately is when we are in the squeeze. Everybody wants the oil, but you have to stay in the press. And we go out of our way as Western 21st century Christians to look at the press, to acknowledge the press, and I'm talking about the olive press that squeezes the olives that produces the oil. We want the oil, but we want somebody else to go into the press and bring us the oil back and give me a vial. But the trouble is the press. And Paul says it this way, we share abundantly in his sufferings. I want you to think about this with me. Think about what it means to Jesus when you are going through a season that you hate, that hurts, that costs, that takes, that humiliates, that breaks you. Think about what it means to him when you are in that press and you are still singing, you are still trusting. You are still loving. You are still believing. You are maybe tossed and knocked around and you're getting smacked around by life. But the one thing that you have not moved off of is this confidence that my God is a great God. He is for me, not against me. And Jesus, it may be with tears. It may be weak. It may not be impressive. Nobody else may hear it. But I'm going to say one thing, Lord, in the midst of my suffering, I'm learning more and more how precious you are. You see, we lose our confidence in things and we get a clearer understanding of the degree to which we are to trust people when we're suffering. Some of you have some fantastic people in your life. They're awesome people, but they make terrible gods. And if you lean on them as gods, 
you will be sorely disappointed. It's unfair to them and it's unjust for us to treat people as, 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 as we would like leaning on God. Paul says, we're going to share in his sufferings, but also in that same process of sharing in the sufferings, we share abundantly. That's the word Paul uses. He says, yes, we, we connect intimately with Jesus in our sufferings. It's an abundant connection and it is a painful connection, but it is a connection. And through that same suffering connection, there comes the fruit of a comforting connection. It means that we go into a trial and we experience something, but when we leave that season of trial, we come out with something that we didn't have when we went into it. And, and the word that the apostle uses is, we come out with some level of abundance. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And when I hear that verse, I won't speak for you, when I hear that verse, I picture me standing before the Lord with like this big wheelbarrow. And I'm like, load me up with abundance. Pour it out. Give me some of that good, Lord. I brought a big wheelbarrow of faith. Pour something good in. And then I hear him say, Jeff, I'm going to do that. I, probably, I love you so much. Your wheelbarrow is too small. Would you bring me that little rinky-dink wheelbarrow? That's not enough for I'm going to pour in. But Jeff, I've got to fill it with something else too. And what I'm going to fill it with that's going to remain, I have to first fill it with something that won't remain, but it is essential. Well, what is that, Lord? I, Jeff, I'm going to have to fill it with some breaking. I'm going to have to fill it with some, some, some situations, some pains, some some trials. Now, I know some of you don't like that theologically because you've bought into the 21st century westernized lie that's been propagated in churches that God, a good God will never allow trouble in your life. Throw away your Bible if you believe that. Write your own. I, I know I'm being provocative here, but you can't get that theology from the Bible. Nor do I want you to believe that God's some cruel, unfeeling taskmaster who's abusive and disregards how we feel. That's the other extreme. What I'm saying is this. If he wants us to be like Jesus, which he does, if we want to be like Jesus, which we do, then we must experience what Jesus experienced, and part of what he experienced was suffering, was struggle. And so Paul says we're going to have that deeper fellowship with Christ. He also gives... Uh, the reality in verse number six of this beautiful example of overcoming. He says, if, if we are afflicted, which he was, since we're afflicted, Paul says, it's for your comfort and salvation. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we su suffer. Here, here it is. It's right here. This is turning your trouble inside out. Paul says it again. If I'm going through something, Paul says, I'm going to turn it inside out and I'm going to refuse to make the final conclusion about me. I'm going to make my affliction about your need for good. And when I'm comforted, I'm going to make my comfort about your need for good. That's exactly what he's saying in verse number six. He says, I'm going to endure what I'm enduring I'm going to meet the Lord in the midst of it in an abundantly intimate way. And when I come through it, I'm going to take what I experienced via suffering and I'm going to use it for your good. And I'm going to take what I experienced from the comfort and I'm going to use that for your good too. That is amazing. That is the example. That's the, the definition of selflessness. And it is so uh, antithetical to our human response to trouble. Our human response, our natural response, especially when the trial is prolonged or deep or you feel like you got ambushed, 
our knee-jerk reaction is we're going to take everything we can and make it orbit around us. We do that through fear. We do that through the need for somebody to understand us. We do it through the desire for human comfort or, or sympathy or compassion. There's a hundred different reasons why we might do that. But what Paul is, is displaying here is that as we mature and as we grow through enough of these seasons, we recognize that, A, we go in those seasons, but we also come out of those seasons. Don't get amnesia in the midst of your season of trouble. Amnesia happens when you go into it and, and you fail to remember, oh, I've been here before and, and I get out. In the end, there is victory. Listen, let me just go ahead and be blunt. This is not sophisticated, but I'm going to tell you. Humanly speaking, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die. And do you know that when you die, you enter into immediately the greatest victory that you have ever experienced in your life if you are a follower of Jesus? The, world, the, people, the whole world's afraid of dying, but for the Christian, when we die, death is nothing but a doorway. And so he, the, the greatest weapon is death. Jesus shot blocked that weapon from Satan when he rose from the dead, said, in effect, what else you got, Satan? Satan's like, I got nothing. And the Lord says, I know you got nothing. And I'm going to give what I got to all my people that believe in me so that when you bring them death, you're actually ushering them across the threshold into the greatest victory that they've ever known. So forgive me, you can't lose really as a Christian, not in, the, not in the final sense of the word. And so when you're in your valley, you have to recognize I'm an overcomer. Do you know when you really start believing you're an overcomer? When you've had enough seasons of being an undergoer. A lot of people don't know they're overcomers because they're spending all of their time trying to never undergo anything. So they build up ways to insulate themselves from trouble. It's like, Jeff, I hear what you're saying, but hey, Jeff, let me just tell you something. I've never had to do it. I got the favor of God on me. I've never had to deal with any of that stuff, bro. You're talking out of your ear, man. That is just not true. That's not, I, and, and I just want to say, what you've experienced is insulation from trouble, but that's not the same thing as being an overcomer. Satan got in the presence of God in, in the early chapters of Job, and he said to God, the only reason Job praises you and serves you is because you protect him from all the trouble. And Satan literally said, take your protection off of him and he'll stop praising you. And so God did. God removed his protection, gave Satan a little permission to mess with Job. Job became an undergoer. And then when you read the back chapters of the book of Job, guess what? He's an overcomer. Friends, listen, if, if we're going to praise him as overcomers, I don't want to sing songs that are just words on a screen that mean nothing to me. They can be true theologically, but I like songs that when I sing them, I've lived them. I like, my praise goes up like 10 I don't sound any better. I'm not the greatest singer, but I mean it more when I'm singing something that I've experienced. People get so sick of reckless love. Nobody in my family likes the song Reckless Love. And we, we, like, we sang Reckless Love a thousand times in like two weeks. And, and I get it. But I still like Reckless Love because I, I, when, I, when I sing it about God going hard to do whatever it takes to rescue a, just a, a bound sinner like I was, I feel it. So I have to sing that in my car by myself now. But I, I, st I still like the song. Why? Not because, you know, theologically or lyrically it's, you know, you know the specimen of what worship is supposed to be, but, but because I was an undergoer 
and through Jesus I became an overcomer, and that song's all about the God who made me an overcomer. And Paul says it this way. He says, I want to take what I learn in my suffering, I want to help you. And when I, I want to take from my season of comfort, and I want to help you. And so it becomes this beautiful example of overcoming. And then in verse 7, it demonstrates hope to others. Listen to what Paul's saying. And he's saying this to other people as he's suffering. He says, our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. The only person that can tell us that is a person who's undergone suffering and made it through. I want to be around, listen, look, can we get real? You've met people in the Christian life, there's something on them good, something significant, a touch, a layer of glory, a spiritual authority, an anointing, and you know it when you get in their presence, and you may know nothing about them. And later on, you find out not about what they've accomplished, not about their education, not about all of their fame, fortune, and awesome things they've done because their brother or sister awesomeness. You find out that they went through the deepest, darkest, painful valley. And when you hear about it, you're saying, that's it. That's why they carry that anointing because they went through it. They shared in the sufferings and they came through it with him with something they had, they did not have before they went in it. And those people are able to look at you in your valley and they're gonna say to you, oh, my hope for you is unshakable. I know what you're going through and it's real and it hurts, but I'm gonna tell you something, you're coming all the way through it. The one who led me through mine is the same one leading you through yours. And we could protest, we could say, yeah, but I don't know, man, I'm not like you. And that, that man or that woman would say, oh, you have no idea how pitiful I was in my valley. You have no idea how it broke me. You have no idea how I struggled. You have no idea how I trembled. You have no idea how I co couldn't formulate my prayers. You don't know how I had wrestling within and temptations without. You have no idea. All you're seeing is the overcoming part. You weren't walking with me in the undergoing part because that was just me and him. But I want to tell you something. He walked me through the undergoing. He brought me forth through the overcoming. And now because I've been through both, I'm looking at you and I'm telling you my hope for you is not shaken. And so that's why preachers, teachers, mentors, people of God, we can look at one another and it's not a rah-rah speech for us to look at one another and say, oh, so you're addicted? So you've got addictions, you've got change, you've got alcoholism, you've got drug addiction, you're addicted to pornography, you're addicted to online shopping, you're a gossip, you're a, you're a liar, you're a, you're, you're a luster, you're, you're in bondage to that. Let me just tell you something. I am not impressed nor am I depressed by your, your, your carnal resume. I'm telling you, he breaks those chains. He laughs at those things. He looks over his shoulder, smiles at you while he puts those things under his feet. If you will trust him, and follow him, and I'm able, and you're able to look at people, and you can hear what they're going through. And you don't minimize it. It's not that you're blowing it off. It's real. It hurts. It's a struggle. You're not being cavalier about it, but what you're saying is what you're undergoing is nothing compared to the overcomer who is willing to shepherd you through this whole thing. So I refuse to leave you hopeless. I want to be compassionate. I want to be merciful. I want to be understanding, 
But I am never going to encourage you towards hopelessness, no matter how hopeless it might appear in your situation. And so Paul says the same thing. He says, our hope for you is unshaken. You're sharing in suffering. You'll also share in comfort. Let me give you these last few verses. I know we're a little late, and uh, I forgive you if you're offended about that. Amen. Three or four more verses. Getting honest about the experience of suffering. Here's the teaching moment. Here's some conclusions. It's going to hit your emotions. If and when you are suffering, it's going to hit your emotions. Listen to what Paul the Great, I'm so glad this is in my Bible. We do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. If I told you that, you would say, yeah, that makes sense. Jeff's Jeff, he's got clear weaknesses. He's, he's just a dude. But this is Paul. This is third heaven Paul. This is face-to-face encounters with the resurrected Son of God, Paul. This is lay your hands on dead people, they get up, Paul. This is Paul. And I know that Paul has the same Holy Spirit that we all have. But when I read about Paul's life, I don't typically think of the guy who wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 8, and he said, it got so bad in Asia that I completely ran out of strength because what was being laid on me, my burden, and I despaired even of living. Now, in the English, I'm going to just tell you, no matter what Bible translation you carry in the English, it's insufficient. I'm not a Greek scholar, I don't want to come off as one, but I have some amazing Bible study tools, and I spent a long time for years studying this verse because I needed to know that this was as real as it sounded. Paul is describing a season of life wherein he lost all hope in that season that he would recover from that season. In other words, he hit a season in Asia where he said, I don't think we bounce back from this one. He literally thought it was over. And and he says, we despaired of living. I I, I literally studied that out because I wanted to see if it meant what I felt in my spirit it meant, and it did. It means he wanted to die. The Apostle Paul hit a place where life was so intense that he was literally, I don't think we're going to make it through this one since we're probably not, Lord, Take me home now. Now, we are all aware that Paul wouldn't die for many years later. But I love the fact that the great man of God, my personal New Testament hero, Jesus is not my hero. Jesus is my Lord and master and king. He's he's much more than a hero. Paul is my hero. And when I look at him and I know that Paul hit something so hard and went through a season so burdensome that he was ready to go home, I say, okay, so when I crack, when I tremble, when I struggle, when I shake, when I question, when I despair, there's a precedent for it. And what does that do? Why is that important? 
Because when we struggle, when we tremble, when we crack, when we find out we're not super, Superman or Wonder Woman, the enemy comes in there and he likes to say, you're a fake, you're a phony. All your singing, all your preaching, all your praise, all your counseling. See yourself now, you're a fake and you're a phony. And what I like to say back, and I've learned this over the years, is I just say back, no, actually, I'm an undergoer who's about to be an overcomer. I'm about to turn this pain inside out. I don't mind agreeing with the devil that things get painful. But I will never agree with the conclusion that the devil offers you about your pain. And the conclusion that he offers you about your pain is that it's insurmountable and it's everlasting. That's his lie. And Paul said, no, we feel it, but it's not the final thing that we're going to feel. So it gives us permission to feel the weight of things. Christianity is not switching off your emotions forever and pretending that nothing hits you hard. I'm not a prisoner of my emotions but I want to release them when it makes sense. I never want to obey my emotions because my emotions make terrible masters, but I want to give uh, credence to the fact that, yeah, you're going to feel it sometimes, but let what you believe be stronger than what you feel. If what you feel ever starts stomping out what you believe and know is true, that's when we get in trouble. And so in verse number nine, Paul said this, he says, Here's one of the reasons why we go through trials. I'm almost done. He says, indeed, we felt that we received the sentence of death. He's still talking about that same season in in Asia, Asia Minor. He says, we felt like it was a death sentence every day when we woke up. He says, but now I know why that happened. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but to rely on God who raises the dead. Now, listen. You will read right past verse number nine, and if you read right past it, and you don't meditate on it, and you don't eat it, and you don't eat it again, and you don't regurgitate it and eat it again, and eat it again, and eat it again, and eat it again, you have to eat verse number nine until it so colors your system and becomes part of its bib line. It's in your blood. It is running through you. You have to recognize this, that the, if not the greatest, the greatest reason why trouble and suffering hit us is that we might experience intimacy with Jesus that we cannot experience apart from trouble. The second reason is to teach you to quit trusting you. (laughs) Quit trusting yourself. Quit relying is the more fuller understanding. Stop relying. Stop believing that you're supposed to have all the answers. You're always supposed to have all the resources. You've got to have the exact strength every single day. You're supposed to handle everything at an impeccable level all the time. No cracks, no, no, no drops, no spills, no fumbles. You've got to handle it all. That's such a lie. People like that wouldn't need to be saved. Why? Because they'd be perfect. And Paul says, the reason we went through what we went through is to teach us how to rely on God in ways that we had never relied on him before and to teach us to refuse to rely on ourselves in ways that we've never refused to rely on ourselves before. Some of you are in the grind and you're in the squeeze. And um, I'm I'm gonna give you this word that if you'll receive it, it's a merciful word and it's true if you can receive it. And and by the way, I'm gonna go ahead and aim it at me too. One of the reasons that we find ourselves in the squeeze and in the press and in the fire, and in the trouble, 
is because we actually rely on ourselves way more than we're conscious of. We actually do. And we don't rely on God as much as we could. And the Lord loves us too much to let us go on in those shallow waters forever. He actually wants us in over our head. When you're in over your head, guess what you always need? Rescue. When you're in over your head, your feet don't touch bottom and your strength gives out. And when your feet can't touch bottom and your strength gives out, what happens? Ask Peter. You sink. And what happened when Peter sank? He cried out. And the one who walks on the waters rescued him, saved him, got him back in the boat. And Peter never looked at Jesus the same way again. So the last word, how many times have I said that? Is that three times? Because you say it three times and then you're actually done. I'm not even bringing the band up. I'm going to close right here and we're going to pray. It solidifies our trust in God. When you turn your trouble inside out, it solidifies your trust in God. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, he will deliver us. Do you get that? I learned from the last deep, dark, troubling valley that he's a deliverer. I'm in another one right now. He's going to deliver me. And on him, I have set my hope. That means I have taken the initiative to choose to believe and live hopefully that the next time I'm in trouble, he's going to deliver me again. That is the lesson. The lesson is this. God wants you to experience enough trouble in life so you can know him as the comforter and the rescuer so that when your valley season comes, you learn the first time, oh, he gets us through valley seasons. He walks through it. I actually come out better than when I went into it because I learned how to follow him. And now that I'm in one again, oh, I know what's going to happen. He's going to give me something that I don't have right now. He's going to remove from me things that I don't need right now. I'm going to come through this current valley, and I'm going to come through it better. I am an overcomer. Therefore, I will come over this valley. I will come through this valley. And then when the next one hits me, at the beginning of it, I'll be able to declare to everybody, hey, don't panic on my behalf. I've been here before with Jesus. I was here not long ago with Jesus. It's another time to walk through this with Jesus. Don't You have to send me flowers. I will overcome again. I am going to be delivered again. And it becomes part of who we are, and we radiate that to a world that is filled with fear, a world that is training us to constantly be self-reliant, trust in ourselves, insulate ourselves, protect ourselves, trust in ourselves. We, We jettison all that unnecessary baggage, and we stand holding the hand of the one who has all things beneath his feet. He looks over his shoulder at us, and he smiles, and he says, you know I've got this, right? And you're able to say back at that point, sure, I know you've got this thing, Lord. You had it the last time and the time before that, and you've got it this time. So Jesus, I receive your smile and full reassurance. I trust that we can turn this pain inside out. We can turn this thing for good. Would you stand to your feet this morning? You are worthy of our trust. You're worthy of our release. You're worthy of us to remember you. Lord, we don't pretend not to tremble. We don't fake it. We lay it all before you. Take what is meant for our harm. Make it for our good. Let us pour it out on others. O Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction, we give you praise. You are worthy. 
And we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.